Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. On October the 8th, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its report on global warming of 1.5 degrees. The report describes expected environmental, economic, and social impacts brought by 1.5 degrees Celsius of climate warming and the actions that need to be taken on a global scale to limit warming to that level. The report's timing is crucial as it comes ahead of this December's global climate meeting in Katowice, Poland, where nations that signed on to the Paris Climate Accord will establish the rules that will guide them in reaching their climate commitments. The new report serves as a guide to how much countries might be able to limit warming. Yet at the same time, the report highlights the unprecedented effort that would be required to hold to the 1.5 degree target. On the phone to talk about the implications of the report is today's guest, Oliver Geddon. Oliver is head of the Europe Research Division at the German Institute for International Security Affairs in Berlin, which advises the German government and the European Union on international policy issues. He will be a lead author of the IPCC's next major report on climate change, the sixth assessment due in 2022. Oliver is also a recent visiting scholar here at the Climate Center. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So you were here at the Climate Center a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was great to have you here. You also happened to be here just before the IPCC's report was released. So thanks again for getting on the phone to talk about the report's findings. Um, and, and before jumping into the report specifically, I wonder if you could tell us about the IPCC's climate research and your work with the organization. Yeah, the IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was founded in 1988. Uh, and it does not only consist of scientists doing regular reports, but uh, as the I tells you, it's an intergovernmental organization. So they have plenaries uh, every six months with uh, government delegations present. So nothing really happens there without government's approval, and that's also a chance for the IPCC because if it does a new report, it also does a summary for policymakers uh, to be approved by government delegations. So no government in the world can say, well, we didn't know anything about it. Uh, so that's one of the strengths, but it can also be very dragging how, how these processes uh, go. The governments cannot really influence the reports itself. Uh, but they can, of course, influence uh, the summaries. The IPCC does not really do own climate research. Uh, the task of the IPCC is to assess the research literature that's out there, and that's already uh, more than enough. Uh, and my work with the IPCC will be in the next regular report uh, that will come out in uh, in uh, three years from now, or the first part of that report. Uh, the IPCC has three working groups, the one on the physical sciences, the second one on impacts and adaptation, and the third one, and that's why I will be involved, uh, is on uh, climate change mitigation, and I will be working in a chapter that deals with carbon dioxide removal, uh, which is finding ways to draw carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that already has been emitted. 
so as you just mentioned, the IPC turns out um, re- reports on a, a regular basis, these, these assessment reports that come out every five to seven years. What brought about this interim 1.5-degree report, and what's its purpose? Yeah, I mean, there is, um, let's say, a boom in special reports uh, that has happened before in, in the 2000s, for example. There has been a report on carbon uh, capture and storage, I think, in 2012 on renewable energies and, and a year later on extreme weather events. Uh, and in this cycle, uh, there will be three special reports, and the first one will be on 1.5 degrees. Uh, that's due to the fact that at the Paris Climate Conference in 2015, uh, they uh, agreed on a new overarching global climate target, uh, at least below 2 degrees Celsius, but if possible, pursuing actions towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, but there was not much research out there at that time, and uh, so the governments said, uh, let's have the IPCC assess that uh, 1.5 degrees target regarding mitigation, but also regarding uh, the impacts. And uh, regarding the impacts of 1.5, and if you compare it to 2 degrees, there really wasn't much research out there, and I think that has, in a way induced a lot of uh, new and original um, literature, whereas on mitigation, everybody kind of knew that that would mean more and deeper mitigation and faster. Uh, And it's kind of a sad story that the governments uh, of the world used that three-year interim phase until the report came out uh, to play the usual wait-and-see game, as if they didn't know. Uh, you mean wait-and-see what the 1.5-degree report would say and then yeah, or, determine actions based on that? Yeah, what the IPCC tells them to do, although they kind of know what to do to mitigate faster uh, and in a more drastic way. Of course, there were no concrete numbers out there, but back in 2015, the world has not been on track to limit warming to 2 degrees, uh, the 1.5 degrees target was kind of a surprise. It came out as a demand of uh, um, small island developing countries. This was at the Paris, uh, Paris negotiations, is that correct? Right. So the industrialized countries had to agree on that to get the deal through. And many would say, well, it's kind of an aspirational goal. And so they decided, let's do that report. Uh, But they didn't use the time between 2015 and 2018 uh, to start drastically reducing emissions. Um, They stalled in, I think, 2016, 2017. Uh, Now there are projections that they will uh, go up uh, in 2018. Now is a crucial time to see do governments of the world or do the governments of industrialized countries really take the 1.5 degrees target seriously. Tell us what some of the main differences between the 2 degree target, which, as you mentioned, was the main Paris uh, target, uh, and the 1.5 degree target are. And and my understanding is that uh, the current trajectory 
the world will see 1.5 degrees of warming by 2040, which isn't that far in the future. Right. I mean, we already are at plus one degree uh, compared to pre-industrial times. Uh, estimates are that uh, per decade, uh, temperature increase right now is 0.2. So in the 2040s, we might uh, cross 1.5 degrees. Uh, the interesting aspect is that whereas with two degrees, which has been the target since 2009, basically, uh, everybody was seeing that as a not-to-exceed limit, uh, whereas with 1.5, because it seems unrealistic uh, that we will be able to stay always under 1.5, even the most optimistic scientists and policymakers don't believe that, the idea is we might cross the 1.5 degrees threshold, have a little bit of an overshoot or a little bit more of an overshoot, um, depending on, a, on the emission trajectory, and then be able to bring uh, the temperature back below 1.5 uh, before the end of the century. Uh, so that's, that's one difference in the way we treat the target. Uh, but if you translate it into... Um, emissions reductions that would be needed. The basic message is that for carbon dioxide, which is the major um, greenhouse gas we have to tackle uh, and that we have to bring to zero at some point, so to stabilize temperatures, uh, for 1.5 uh, that would have to happen until 2050 approximately. For two degrees it would have to happen until 27.5 approximately. Both dates are far away. We could consider that feasible or not. Maybe it's better to compare midterm interim targets, uh, and they would say, the IPCC would say, well, for uh, a two degrees uh, compatible trajectory, emissions would have to be reduced uh, between. 2010 and 2030 by 20% uh, for 2-degrees target and by 45% uh, for 1.5. If you consider that emissions have been increasing since 2010, actually, that would mean from now on, let's say, minus 50% until 2030. So having uh, global emissions within 12 years, which does not seem overly realistic. Well, I, I think China has also said that by 2030, that's when its emissions will peak. Right. So if China, the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide at this point, still plans on growing its emissions through 2030, that 45% fall off by 2030 doesn't seem realistic. So, you know, you mentioned that the island nations wanted this 1.5 degree goal in into the Paris Climate Agreement back in, in 2015. More broadly, you know, again, since we are on this trajectory to blow past all this stuff, why are we even talking about this right now? Is it a distraction? Maybe it's not a distraction. We talk about it because there are powerful political stakeholders who demanded it and who tasked the IPCC. But as I said in the beginning, uh, the IPCC, in a way, also consists of government delegations. So the question is, yeah, are we, 
are we living in a bubble? Uh, is climate science, climate policy living in a bubble, not seeing what's going on? Well, they see what's going on. Uh, there have been major clashes during the production and the negotiation on the summary for policymakers comparing the trajectory we are already on uh, because, of course, we could do business as usual trajectories, construct them, calculate them without government saying anything, just taking the economic data. But under the Paris Agreement, all the countries are handing in pledges, more or less voluntary commitments, what they want to do until 2030, like you said in the China example. And if you aggregate all these pledges, some are conditional, so you have to consider, okay, what's going to happen? Are they realistic? Sometimes they might be too pessimistic, sometimes uh, too optimistic. But you would land uh, at slightly higher emissions than we have today. So if you want to have the emissions uh, by 2030, I think at the very latest in Katowice at the end of this year, at the annual UN climate uh, summit, you would have to hear major announcements, at least of all major emitting countries, uh, industrialized countries, old industrialized countries, like the US, Canada, most of Europe, but also emerging economies like China and India. And there is no sign that this is going to happen. So I would say from the standpoint and the view of many governments in the industrialized world, it's more or less, at least when it comes to mitigation, an exercise, and they had to comply to it. For the least development countries, I would say they kind of know that it's unrealistic that we will stay below 1.5. I think for them it was quite important to see more research on the impact, what's happening already below two degrees, and also establish a new benchmark for financial flows, mm-hmm. uh, either for adaptation uh, or for what climate diplomats would call loss and damage. So money for damages that cannot even be held in check by adaptation. So you kind of create or establish a new benchmark for how it should be. And that, of course, I would say shifts the balance a little more towards uh, developing countries, although we might never be able to go to 1.5. Let me ask you this. So you, you've mentioned that the the United Nations Climate Conference is coming up this December in Poland. That's part of the ongoing Paris climate process. And my understanding is that they'll be working on the rules that countries follow as they're working towards meeting their their climate commitments. You also mentioned that this 1.5 degree report, a lot of countries have kind of been treading water waiting to hear, hear the results. What impact, even if, regardless of whether 1.5 is, is realistically possible, what impact might this report have uh, at the conference in Poland? 
I'm not sure if that report really will have impact already in Poland. Um, there are built into the Paris Agreement uh, or built into cornerstones of the Paris Agreement because we don't have a detailed rule book yet, as you mentioned, uh, are regular review cycles, although the first formal cycle uh, will only start in 2023 because the Paris Agreement, we, we already treated as if it were there, but it, it comes into effect only in 2020. I think in Poland, you will hear more of the usual language that everybody's deeply concerned about the widening gap between the trajectory the countries are actually on and where they would need to be uh, for 1.5 uh, and supplemented by the usual blame games. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it will already influence what's going on in Katowice. Katowice is not so much about increasing ambition. It's more about really creating rules or agreeing on rules how this whole affair will be governed uh, and even how certain new elements might be governed. So how, for example, what I'm working on, carbon dioxide removal uh, will be governed, the accounting rules, the monitoring, the verification of what countries are actually doing, the overcoming of the usual divide in, in international climate policy uh, between developed and developing countries when it comes to requirements uh, for monitoring and verification and reporting. So thousands of pages of really nitty-gritty stuff. And I think the following years, but if there, nobody is really talking about we're stepping up and uh, we're increasing our ambition, that by the end of the year you could say, even if it was not part of a formal review cycle, yeah, if you want to turn the ship around in 12 years and nobody's even talking about it, then it's not going to happen. And the next problem is that often countries talk about things and have new targets but don't act on them. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it, it was not a wasted opportunity, but I think the 1.5 degrees report might create illusions about what can be achieved. A scientific assessment report will never say this can be achieved if there's just a political will. They have all kinds of requirements set up. They're simply answering the question under which circumstances it could. And they say, well, one requirement is minus 45 to minus 50 percent by 2030 or net zero in by 2050 but they don't say uh, it's doable or it will be done. At the press conference, um, when the report was presented, one of the co-chairs of the IPCC working group on mitigation uh, said, well, reaching 1.5 uh, is very well possible within the limits of uh, the laws of physics and chemistry, but it will be will require unprecedented economic efforts, political efforts, societal efforts. And yeah, the major mood in climate science is 
that we would, should be happy uh, if we are able uh, to stay within two degrees. Well, I want to get to that point. So, so um, in June of 2017, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, released a report saying that ambitious carbon reduction targets, as you just said, are technically still feasible, 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, whatever we choose. But the political aspects are really where the rubber hits the road. Now, you are a cultural and social anthropologist by training. Much of your work focuses on the politics of climate change. And I recall that when you were here, you mentioned that politicians don't like goals that can't be met. They don't want to play a game that they know is a losing game. And I'm not making any judgments here, but that's, that's kind of where the conversation was. What might a politician, and this is a very broad question, and we could obviously talk about any country and any place within any country, what do you feel a politician might make of the 1.5 degree report or even the two degree target? Is it an opportunity or is it an opportunity to lose? What is it? Well, I mean, we could look at uh, what politicians at least actually said uh, within the last week. And, and let's take the Europeans. The Europeans have always been champions of international uh, climate policy. They kind of invented the two degrees target. Uh, and in Europe, the narrative goes, OK, we have to uh, help stabilizing global uh, temperature. Of course, Europe can't do that alone. But at the same time, it's an opportunity to modernize our economy, uh, to foster clean clean or green growth. And uh, there are lots of co-benefits and opportunities. And it's interesting that you saw very much the same statements after the 1.5 degrees report came out, uh, and you had a feeling they did not really read what's in the summary. Uh, And it's not a a question of timing, because the government had the basic results of this report uh, since since June 2018. So they they simply stick to the story. and, And at the same time, you think, but the report said you have to reduce your emissions by 50% until 2030. So at least somebody now has to propose that, and nobody's doing that. And that's so strange. So it's, I mean, it's just one example. It's, it's the political bloc that considers itself being the front runner in climate policy, and the European Union is kind of the front runner, at least compared uh, to others. But the European Union policies are far away from what the IPCC would require to be on a 1.5 consistent pathway, plus the rest of the world would simply have to do the same. So I think politicians just, they are happy, they are agreed to that goal, and the last thing they want to hear is, uh, coming from scientists, that you can't achieve that goal anymore, because then you're really in trouble. What, Mm -hmm. What would the general mood be if scientists say, well, politicians have agreed on a target uh, that's not achievable. What would um, the uh, developing countries do that demanded that target? I think they would not only blame industrialized countries for doing this, they immediately would demand large amounts of money uh, 
as compensation. So if scientists say, well, it's still technically feasible, then uh, the show can go on. And uh, at at some point, uh, I think it should become concerning that it's always five minutes to midnight in climate policy and always has been five minutes to midnight in climate policy. And uh, whereas in Paris, many people thought 1.5, they can't be serious, we'll never meet that. Everybody is kind of surprised now that the message is, well, if you are only at uh, zero emissions in 2050, um, we can do that. And technically, I think it is possible. Uh, and But climate science and climate research in a broader sense is not very good at assessing political inertia, uh, institutional mm-hmm. inertia. Then the considerations about drastic changes in the economy, um, they're kind of optimistic because they hear all the optimistic statements. Uh, but I think we, we should focus more on what's actually being done, what has been done in the last eight years uh, since since the Copenhagen Accord, um, which was often seen as a failure, but I think it kind of brought us on track to get every country on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think many researchers are, are not very good at assessing what's going on within governments, what are the things that governments are happy to say but unhappy to act on um, and the other way around. And yeah, the, the one of the fascinating things of the Paris Agreement is that 196 countries basically agreed on uh, a treaty or pact that brought the earth on the path towards three degrees or more by the end of the century while being able to put a 1.5 degrees label on it. You know, um, I, I want to take this whole discussion about the temperatures uh, one step further. I think this is the last step I'll take it to. And that is that there's been some criticism of the concept of temperature goals and also the concept of carbon budgets, which tell us how much carbon we can still emit and stay below a certain temperature target. The alternative, I suppose, is, is that we just focus on getting to net zero carbon. What's your view on this? Yeah, I, I, would, I would support such a move. And I think if we look at the IPCC's communication of this 1.5 degree support, you can already see it there. It is a report on a temperature target but the whole communication on what to do is you have to be at net zero emissions by a certain year, in this case 2050, and that is really new. And it is also based on a clause within the Paris Agreement uh, that says, well, in order to meet these temperature targets at one point, uh, we have to get to net zero emissions. Um, not really specifying that on on a time scale, just saying in the second half of the century. Um, so what I would expect now, and that would really be a a pos- 
positive development that more and more countries will think about national uh, or subnational, in the case of, of federal states, uh, subnational um, net zero targets. So already today, uh, one week after the uh, 1.5 degrees report um, has been published, uh, the government of the United Kingdom tasked their main advisory body uh, to chart out pathways uh, to a net zero target for the UK. It has been expected, but they wanted to wait for the 1.5 degrees report. There are already countries uh, who decided on such a target, like Sweden, net zero 2045, and New Zealand, uh, net zero 2050. Uh, outgoing Governor Brown of California also signed an executive order net zero in California by 2045, although we'll have to wait uh, what will happen uh, after the elections in California on that target because it's not really enshrined um, in law. But I think that's that's the major move, and I think it is a way... Well, it cuts to the chase, right? We're not talking about degrees. We're just saying, look, the real goal here is we need to eliminate carbon emissions to get net zero, right? And And... And right. it we, seems like you can measure against that very clearly what are carbon emissions at this point as a country, et cetera, whereas the, the connection going through the degrees to get to the carbon is a little bit more roundabout and maybe a little bit less uh, intuitive to understand. Right. And the thing is, if you have a global target like temperature, then accountability is global, it's collective. You can always say, well, I'm deeply committed, I'm as the government of whatever country, I'm deeply committed uh, uh, to reach the 1.5 degrees target, but if the world is going to miss it, all the others are to blame as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, If every country would have a net zero target, then accountability and transparency would be much easier because you could see what is this country actually doing? They you would achieve not all net have... zero or you don't? Yeah, and if you build new fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, you're going to be asked, why are we doing that if we already agreed on bringing emissions down to zero? And I think it's also actionable, more actionable in a legal sense. I think, of course, depending uh, on uh, national legal cultures, um, I think you, it would be easier to sue um, to sue governments for not doing as much as they should do if they agree to a global target. So I think that really would be a major improvement to have net zero targets and then coming to the net before zero. Uh, it will be impossible to eliminate all CO2 emissions completely. Somebody, some emissions will not uh, be possible to, to mitigate completely, like methane from uh, agriculture, for example. Some might be extremely hard or at least too expensive, uh, like emissions from aviation. Uh, so net zero means um, you can have residual fossil fuel emissions, uh, but then you have to offset them by negative emissions or carbon dioxide removal. 
Of course, the priority should be to bring emissions at least close to zero and then offset the rest. That will be a major debate then in the next years. But having a net zero target forces us to think and talk and act on every single source of emissions. To think about it hard, can we eliminate these emissions? How can we do that? Uh, and if not, should we offset them with carbon dioxide removal? And if so, which, what kinds of carbon dioxide removal? Of course, it will be a highly politicized category what these residual emissions really are, how high the levels would be. But I think it would be quite healthy not to spare heavy industry and certain sectors of the economy from asking, what are you doing uh, to get to zero? There are some countries like the European Union um, who have targets like minus 80 by 2050 or minus 90 by 2050. Um, minus 90... What, percent, what's... sorry. Uh -huh. Minus 80 percent by 2050, minus 90 percent by, by 2050. Uh, so there's always a rest, and many industries and many countries think, okay, they will be part of the rest uh, because it can't be done for their emissions. Net zero means we have to talk about everything. We could also say, well, your emissions might be residual emissions, uh, but then you, your company, your sector, your country is responsible for finding opportunities to offset those residual emissions by carbon dioxide removal. So you get a much more concrete debate on, on what to do during the next decades. Well, um, you know, I, I just want to emphasize again, we're talking about negative emissions here. The, the longer, my understanding is that the longer that the world waits to reduce emissions to get to net zero, the more we will overshoot that carbon budget and mm -hmm. the more we will have to rely on carbon dioxide removal technologies to remove the excess, potentially also go to solar geoengineering, which is when you put the, uh, you know, some kind of, excuse my t technological knowledge of this, but some kind of basically a dust in the air that blocks sunlight come from coming in. And all of these technologies, solar geoengineering and carbon dioxide renewable, have not been proven at scale, they're expected to be largely, usually expensive. So the longer we wait, the more carbon dioxide we have to, to remove, the more we might need to result to solar geoengineering, and the higher the price tag, right? It's cheaper to act now. Yeah, it's cheaper to act now, and it's safer to act now. I think for carbon dioxide removal, you, you just explained the second line of, uh, of usage. Um, there's a limited carbon budget, a global carbon budget, and if you overshoot it, then the only way to balance it out is by going into negative, so going below zero. That's something the IPCC report did not speak that clearly about, but it's in the pathways. But even if you want to go to zero, you have to tackle these residual emissions, which could be the first phase of carbon dioxide removal, the numbers not being that high at that point. And, yeah, we're dealing with uh, technologies that basically are all still in the infancy. And it's quite of 
surprising that the IPCC, in answering the question, how can we get to 1.5, already assumes 770 gigatons of carbon dioxide removal on top of going to zero emissions, and 770 gigatons in the 21st century, uh, that would be 20 times today's, uh, let's say, positive emissions. What we emit today, that's around 40 gigatons of CO2, the IPCC... 40 gigatons per year. Yeah, 40 gigatons per year. So the amounts are enormous, what we would need uh, uh, in terms of carbon dioxide removal, speaking about technologies uh, that are largely unproven or at least unproven at scale. And it would be a whole new industry uh, to put this on the ground. Uh, And if that fails, and we still think that we have to meet temperature targets at any cost, then we would have to talk about solar radiation management as well, and the description was was quite right. Uh, You put reflective material uh, into the upper atmosphere, like uh, 20 kilometers high, and uh, it would uh, affect the incoming sunlight, Uh, and it would be a way to temporarily uh, suppress uh, temperature increases. But nobody knows about the exact side effects that could have uh, being risky, maybe being beneficial. Nobody really knows. But the only way to find out is in the first phase to model such drastic interventions. Uh, and we have a natural analog here that's large volcano eruptions, and that would su- they would suppress um, temperatures for a year or so. Um, but to find out what might really happen, you would have to do tests in the stratosphere. There are proposals out right now. These tests could happen as early as next year. Well, Harvard uh, University is working on this right now. Right. David Keith at Harvard University is working on that. And it remains to be seen how the general public and politicians would react to such experiments um, because then it's not talking about schematics and theoretical plans. At least there are concrete installations. And, and I think in the, in the public imagination, that changes quite something. If you see, they, they at least start to test it now. It's, it's, it's far away from implementation. And, and the people at Harvard University would say, well, we just have to get research going. We're not talking about deployment. But since nobody knows and since governments are not ruling out doing this one day, uh, we at least should know uh, what the effects might be. And that's, of course, scary stuff. But if you take 1.5 dead seriously, then at least you have to consider it, which the actual report yeah, kind of circumvents because there is a general uneasiness uh, thinking and talking about drastic measures, measures like solar radiation management. Because we don't know what, what the, the multiple effects may be. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you one, one question here to, to finish up. So uh, you'll be working on the IPCC's sixth assessment report. I, th- I think the first part of that, as you said, comes out in 2022. I think that's correct. Yeah. 
can you give us a preview of what that report may be about and how it may differ from prior reports? If it if it differs, or is it just more research on the same same kind of uh, same issues? It's kind of hard to say because the work uh, just started recently, and uh, it, this is really a major effort. Uh, so it's, uh, I think, overall 800 scientists uh, assessing the literature, organizing comparisons of of models, and every new assessment report uh, is based on the last one. So you will have changes of general trajectories, uh, but you could say it would be it would be. I think misleading to to expect or to promise um, surprises here. I think the general mood in the IPCC is that now the human or anthropogenic influence on the warming climate has been proven, and there's no need to put the same kind of efforts into that, and there should be a shift at least a slight shift uh, more into the adapta- impact and adaptation area, but much more into solutions. The problem with solutions is that the IPCC in its mandate says it is policy relevant, but not policy prescriptive. And the more you talk about solutions, and the more you talk about a landscape of climate policy making that has evolved over 25 years, it might not deliver that much until now, but there's a lot to be seen what works, but also what works not. And if you talk about solutions, one way or one part of it is talking about failure until now. And governments are kind of cautious when it comes to that. So I think there might be a a tension in that talking about solutions, but also assessing what can we learn uh, from past failures uh, in in the future work of the IPCC. So I think it will be always interesting, like this year, not only to look at the actual report that the scientists did by themselves, but also on the summary for policymakers, which are negotiated between the scientists and the government delegations, but with a veto right uh, in the hands of scientists. So you cannot have anything in the summary that contradicts the underlying report. Mm -hmm. But it's very interesting to see uh, how certain governments are intervening in the summary. Uh, This... uh, time around uh, Saudi Arabia at the forefront, but also the U.S. delegation, uh, Japan. Um, The IPCC reports are being treated quite seriously in climate negotiations. Governments might not act on that, but if they have to agree to a summary, it's just taken for granted that that's the knowledge base of governments. but I think science cannot force policymakers uh, and politicians and governments to 
act on climate change or to act adequately on climate change, I think the only thing they can do make it harder not to act. Mm -hmm. uh, I think scientists have not the job of pushing policymakers, but presenting the knowledge base we have. And that knowledge base, of course, calls for drastic action uh, compared to the targets that policymakers themselves have agreed upon uh, and uh, in relation to the impacts we will see already at 1.5, uh, let alone higher targets. Oliver, thank you very much for talking. Thank you for having me. Today's guest has been Oliver Geddon, a recent visiting scholar here at the Kleinman Center and head of the Europe Research Division at the German Institute for International Security Affairs in Berlin, Germany. For more insights into climate and energy policy, check out the Kleinman Center website or subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Kleinman Energy. Also, did you know that Energy Policy Now is available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and even on Alexa smart speakers? You can listen to us on Alexa through TuneIn Radio or through the AnyPod skill on Alexa by saying, Alexa, ask AnyPod to play Energy Policy Now. However you get your podcast, thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 